From the True North Podcast Network, this is Philosophia, a podcast in which we look at the concepts of the philosophical classical tradition and their application to our lives today and current events. I'm Dr. David Schenk, and on today's episode, I'm going to deliver the second part of my episode on personhood. So last week was Chronological Snobbery and the Primacy of Personhood, Part 1. This week is Chronological Snobbery and the Primacy of Personhood, Part 2. There is a basic difference between humans as homo sapiens on the phylogenetic tree in biology versus humans as persons. Don't confuse those two categories or everything that I say next will remain invisible. Think of it this way. Little green men, if there are any, are persons. They just aren't human ones. What's one of the really important, pressing, motivating things about personhood, whereby I keep saying it's such a big screaming deal? Well, here's one, but only one. Dignity. Moral inviolability, whereby the person cannot ever acceptably be treated as if they were a mere thing. Things don't have dignity intrinsically. Persons do. That's the difference. That's why those of us who eat meat suffer no special qualms about a cheeseburger but we absolutely should and would about a people burger. Sit? Okay. So if that's right, and I say it is, all of our moral thinking will be deformed if we lack this fundamental category, personhood. For those of you that are fellow philosophers, I say our metaphysical thinking will be deformed too but our moral thinking will be badly deformed. And today, in America, it is. So, what is personhood then? First and foremost, it is an irreducible thing. It's one of the fundamental parts of the cosmos, whereby it cannot be intellectually broken down into constituent elements that are themselves impersonal and that fit together to make up the whole. Let me give some examples before I explain this further. On one side of the coin, consider a machine like a car. A car is something the workings of which are all explainable by the interactions of the parts that it's made of. A person is not. Or for another example, a chemical compound is something the behavior of which you can explain just in terms of all the possible interactions of its fundamental components, the elements of the periodic table, 
a person is not. You see, cleverly designed cars, computers, or chemical compounds all do extraordinary things when used properly. One thing they cannot do, though, is see themselves doing these things. And especially, they cannot make independent judgments about whether or not they should do these things. Only a person can do that. Recall that in my first podcast episode, I spoke of the primacy of truth and how a distinctive feature of persons is that they have an innate desire to discover the truth about all sorts of things just for knowledge's own sake. Human curiosity reaches out beyond mere interest in what we can do with the things we know and into a domain of wanting to know things just in order to know them. Knowledge for its own sake is a real phenomenon among humans. It is not so among beasts, or what today we call among mere animals. Even a very clever house cat, even a very clever and curious house cat, and I have one, will not do that, will not want to know things just in order to know them. She will want to know things in order to become more comfortable and secure and sure of her physical environment and how to navigate it. But, but once she has that security, her curiosity is gone and she takes a nap. Humans, on account of personhood, will stay up until two o'clock in the morning reading up on something that they're never gonna use for anything else, just out of curiosity alone, just because it intrigues us and we want to learn about it. Up until this last year, I spent my entire life dedicated strictly to intellectual curiosity and satisfying it. To be as I was a tenured humanities professor just means you get paid cash money to sit on your butt and read any books you want. It's up to you what you read. And, and the school will pay for the books even from your faculty spending budget. It's a sweet gig, let me tell you. And you spend nearly all your time satisfying intellectual curiosity, learning things you didn't already know. And three times a week, sometimes even two times a week if you teach Tuesdays, Thursdays, you walk into classrooms full of enthusiastic, energetic students. Let's just pretend. Um, you, full, you walk into a classroom full of students and you tell them about the things you've been reading and why they should care about them too. And then you make them go read some stuff. And, you know, a couple times a semester, you got a great exams and papers and quizzes and stuff like that. And that's pretty much the job. It's like Billie Holiday used to sing. It's nice work if you can get it. That 
innate curiosity, wanting to know things just to know them, that is something that persons do. Beasts don't. So this means our relationship to truth is of a fundamentally different kind from an ordinary animal's, from a beast's. Okay, but on the other side of this coin called the phenomenon of personhood, consider René Descartes' idea of a purely disembodied mind living out its mental life. He spells this out in his book, The Discourse on Method, but um, the easiest one to read is, is a later book that he wrote called Meditations on First Philosophy. And in his first two meditations, he spells out that scenario. It's called the dream argument. It's, it's a scenario in which all there is is a mind and no body, and yet it goes to its mental life. Consider René Descartes' purely disembodied mind living out its life. Well, according to the classical tradition, that cannot be a person either. Why not? While I was writing this podcast on a laptop, I stopped several times to take a drink of water from a glass. Disembodied minds don't drink water. They don't even have arms and hands with which to grasp one. Only bodies do that. At dinner last night, I ate a lot of fresh produce because I'm a health nut. Have been for a long time. Strictly speaking, a pure mind cannot eat. It doesn't have a mouth or a stomach with which to feel hungry. All a mind can do is exert its will to make the body eat something. But when I say I ate a bunch of produce last night, I don't mean that colloquially. I'm not speaking loosely. That's not metaphorical. I mean exactly and strictly what I said. I, David Shank, ate a bunch of produce for dinner last night. I didn't push my temporarily animated and largely obedient body to pick up the fork and with the fork stab the produce and then move the fork with the produce on it toward my mouth and then make my mouth open. And No, all of that is plain nonsense. I, the entire person, mind and body together, if you wish, not thinking about tendons and arms and fingers and forks and mouths, just doing it. I, the entire person, sat down and ate a bunch of produce. This then means that while the person named David cannot be reduced to his physical bodily elements, neither can he be reduced to his mind or his personality. I am at heart a special kind of fusion of these two elements, mind and body, that cannot exist as who and what I am without both of those two parts being there, fused together in just that specific way that they are. After eating dinner, another clever thing I did last night was go to bed. Pure minds 
don't climb under the covers. They're not physical things. They have no covers to climb under. They don't take up any space. You see what I mean? But when I say that I climbed under the covers, I don't mean that my disembodied intellect willed my temporarily animated body to climb under the covers. No. What I mean is I, the person, climbed under the covers and went to bed and read this excellent book that I've been reading lately, Coddling of the American Mind by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, with both of whom I seem to agree just right down the line. This concept of personhood does seem a very strange one to our minds today. I mean, very strange. It seems like it cannot be true, cannot be correct, cannot be an accurate account of what's going on in human nature. Why? Well, because today we are unconsciously accustomed to thinking of everything in terms of machinery, everything in terms of mechanistic laws of nature governing over how all the parts of something work together to make the whole go. No one around today has any real arguments to defend this unconscious conviction of ours and prove it true. Hardly any of us ever even think about it, like pay attention to it, notice that it's there at all. We just believe it because, well, everyone does. That's why we're so convinced of it. Nothing better than just everyone's convinced of this. As if the mob had some sort of moral authority in metaphysics. No, it doesn't. But in antiquity, and in the scholastic period from, say, the late 1100s to, let's just say, the 1600s, no one would have believed that. No one. They were all convinced that only some things in the world are ultimately pieces of machinery. And all sorts of other things are not machinery, are not mechanistic. Someone who sits down and actually reads people like Aristotle and Aquinas, and note this, reads them in hopes of learning from them, not just in order to smirk and feel superior to them and laugh at what these old bozos back in antiquity used to believe, but we know better now because we're so smart, because we have this thing called modern science. Anyone who sits down and actually reads people like Aristotle and Aquinas with the ambition of learning something from them will know that pretty much everyone of the classical tradition in the scholastic period and in antiquity was convinced only some things are machines and whole bunches of other things, living things especially, are not at their hearts fundamentally just machinery. But of course, 
someone who doesn't read them will not know this. You see the point? If we're gonna, if we're gonna learn from the classical tradition, first we have to read it and read it with an attitude of wanting to learn something from them that we don't ourselves already know better than they do. We have to at least allow for the possibility that they can be our teachers and we their students. Chronological snobbery will never allow that. So it is a gift of the ancients and the medievals that they, and increasingly they alone, will help us to see the otherwise invisible biases and blind spots of our current machine-obsessed age. In order ever to receive that gift, though, we really will have to read them, and read them with the conviction that there is something there for us to learn. I am telling you bluntly, your children will never receive that in public education. So if you hope to give it to them, you're going to have to send them to a school that teaches it. The only schools I have seen that do are the classical ones. I'm David Schenk. This has been Philosophia. Next week, I will talk about the consequences of this category, personhood, for our moral thinking and how, as a result of our confused moral reasoning, we have ended up with theories of ethics that are horribly deformed. And that deformity has led to so many of the conflicts assailing us in American society today. So please do join me for that episode as well. This podcast is brought to you by the True North Podcast Network, produced by Classical Academic Press. For more information on Philosophia and the other shows on the True North Podcast Network, visit www.truenorth.fm. That's www.truenorth.fm. <laughs>